Even before they start to manipulate each other to increase their riches, to increase their power over each other, I think you get a sense that something is sort of rotten about the deal as it's described. everyone, welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thank you for joining us for another week. We're glad to have you on that end of the podcast, and it's a privilege to be on this end of the podcast <laughs> to get to talk about scripts, which is just one of my favorite things to do, and I know one of Jackson's favorite things to do, and so to be in the eighth season of this show where we just get to spend dedicated time talking about scripts every week for the majority of the year, I mean, it's it's a good life. It's true. It's been pretty great. Glad that we're getting to kind of jump into a wide variety of scripts this season already, and we're kind of increasing that variety again as far as our, our previous season so far, going with a play that's a little bit more in like the classic American theater sort of category. Yeah, this, uh, this script today is one of those scripts that is sort of a, a piece of American drama history. And it, it, it may be one that is maybe a little unfamiliar to some folks. If that's true, we are very proud to introduce you to Lillian Elman and to the body of work that she produced in the middle of the 20th century. And this is kind of the hallmark play of hers that has, you know, stuck around. It's in the American drama anthologies. It's in your American drama course. If you take a college course in that area, um, um, and and so it, it's going to be really fun to talk about on the podcast. I it's not one that I've ever seen. It did have you know as as Jackson will tell you in the context. It's had some pretty good revivals, um, but one I'd like to see on stage someday. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. So today we're we're talking about the Little Foxes by Lillian Hellman, and yeah, it's it's it is one of those ones that has been as as I'll talk in the context. It it's had it's had quite a bit of. Uh, acclaim uh, and uh, revivals and and is a, a prevalent part of theater um, in the, in the last 100 years. So I'm excited to get to jump into the conversation around it. Yeah, and it's got two really really spectacular uh, female leads, and that you know it's it that is somewhat in this kind of play. This is sort of stealing from our discussion later on, but this kind of play is very reminiscent of a play like Streetcar Named Desire. Right. Many of the same themes, kind of from the same era and descriptors of what's going on. And interestingly, Streetcar also has these two sort of powerful female leads. Now in Streetcar, they're they're a little more um, aligned than they maybe are in uh, in in the Little Foxes, but. It's it's I just think that's interesting that both of these plays that are kind of about the changing south is kind of how you describe it have these two sort of really important female characters in the history of American drama in them. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to kind of uh, examine their relationship in the play and how they um, kind of either are antagonistic towards each other or or kind of. Uh, have some similarities in how they're trying to navigate the culture of the South in the early 1900s. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited to jump into the conversation around it. 
Yeah, and before we do that, we just want to do that thing that we do every episode, which is to invite you, if you haven't already, to consider supporting No Script the podcast. You can do that through Patreon. We are delighted to say that we are supported through Patreon. This is how this podcast is able to move forward. Though, as Jackson and I said at the top of the episode, we love to do it, and we do love to do it. It's a privilege. It's just not a free privilege. And because of that, we need the financial support of our patrons in order to be able to continue to do the show. So we have some great patrons, excellent, wonderful. We're so grateful to the patrons who are over on Patreon. Their monthly financial gift to the running of the show helps us pay for all the stuff that needs to happen to make this weekly script discussion happen for Jackson and I. So we're so grateful for that. If you go over to Patreon, you can discover that there are a couple of different tiers. You pick a tier and that becomes a monthly amount that you agree to give to the running of the show. The lowest tier is just just a dollar a month. It's $12 a year in total. I think that's very affordable. I hope that everybody who listens to No Script with any regularity feels like they're getting a dollar a month or at least $12 a year of return on your time investment spent with us. So hopefully that's you. Please head on over there. Check us out. The easiest way to get it is just patreon.com slash no script podcast, all one word. For whatever reason, the Patreon search functions aren't spectacular. So typing it in is the easiest way to do it. Patreon.com slash no script podcast. You pick your tier, you start supporting us. There are some perks, of course, for being a patron. One of them is you get advance notice of the scripts that are coming out on the show. So you once you join that Patreon list, you can see the scripts that we have laid out for a while for this season. So feel free to head on over there and check that out. And to those of you who are already supporting the show, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yes, thank you so much to all of our patrons, and thanks for checking out NoScript.com. Not NoScript.com. Patreon.com slash NoScript podcast. And now we're going to jump back into the script. Um, I'm going to real quick contextualize just a little bit for you. Uh, first of all, with Lillian Hellman, as we've kind of already mentioned, uh, a very important playwright in, in American history. She did a lot of her work between the 1930s and the 1940s, um, did a number of plays. Um, however, Little Foxes kind of emerged as, as both her favorite, um, and also, uh, the, uh, yeah, greater culture's favorite as well in terms of how often it is produced. Um, it's the real- one that's hung around for sure. I mean, you, you, I can name other Lillian Hellman plays, but I don't think you're going to have as many people recognize them as they would the Little Foxes. It's true. She was, uh, you know, uh, around much of the scene. Uh, Hellman was around that that time frame. She was a part of various guilds. Let's see. We've got the 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 writer, oh, League of American Writers, and and Screenwriters Guild, and was a part of of much of the uh, kind of emerging culture around screenwriting and playwriting around that time. Um, this play in particular, uh, I'll talk a little bit about the play itself, but there's some kind of interesting controversy around it. Um, this this play has uh, some history with that. Uh, Lillian Hellman and the lead actor uh, Tallulah Bankhead, um, who played Regina in in the play, who we'll get to Regina at, at some point here. There was some conflict with uh, these two around uh, where the show was playing. Um, Lillian Hellman would go on to be blacklisted during the the kind of Red Scare days. Um, and had some affiliation with the uh, Communist Party. And when uh, the show runner, the director, and the lead actress, Tallulah Bank, had wanted to take the show to Finland, she wouldn't let them go um, because of the relationship between the Soviet Union and uh, and, and Finland. Um, so so there's this, this kind of... Uh, 
interesting sort of history around that. Interesting history around Lillian Hellman, too, and her relationship with the Communist Party um, around that time when there was a lot of panic around that in the United States. So that's kind of a, just a fascinating bit of the history around it. The production itself uh, was done uh, right to Broadway, uh, directed by Herman Shumlin of this production of Little Foxes. Uh, again, uh, Tallulah Bankhead was in the in the main role, and she kind of headlined it. The, the play was also turned into a movie, which Hellman also uh, wrote the screenplay for, and that movie starred uh, Bette Davis in it. So a pretty famous film was was made of it and uh, kind of entered into uh, the, the greater cultural awareness as a result of that film. There's been plenty of revivals. There was uh, a 1981 revival, a 1997 revival. The Shakespeare Theater of New Jersey did in 2009. There was a very notable production at the Manhattan Theater Club in 2017 that starred uh, both Laura Linney and <sighs> Cynthia Nixon. Oh, um, yeah. yeah, switching the roles uh, every night between uh, Birdie and Regina. And and that was, or yeah, alternating between those roles. Both of them were nominated for Tonys for that. I believe Cynthia Nixon won uh, a Tony for that. So that was just a powerhouse production. Do yourself a favor. Just YouTube it. The Little Foxes, Manhattan Theater Club. There's lots of, I mean, obviously the full production isn't online, but there are clips, right, that they use to advertise the show. Just watch one. Just watch yeah. Cynthia Nixon and Lauren. Just watch them do these scenes. It First of all, it'll give you a sense of the play if you don't have one. But also, man, those are two great actors. And they <laughs> alternated these incredible roles night after night. That's amazing. Yeah, it just 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 <laughs> floors you. Yeah, that some of the scenes are are awesome. Uh, there was also production as recent as 2020 scheduled at the Gate Theater in Dublin. That was uh, of course postponed due to the COVID nineteen pandemic. But the play continues to be produced, continues to be grappled with some of the themes in it. And yeah, it, it's a, it's it's a part of the lexicon of theater. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, if we're the ones who are introducing you to this script, I'm excited to do it. It's a, a fun thing for you to know about, and it'll be very fun for us to talk about. Before that, let me quick synopsize the script. So The Little Foxes takes place in the year 1900. This is in the South, Alabama, post-Civil War, basically. And it follows an extended family and their family business and the kind of the controversy, the tensions, the negotiations that happen over kind of a major major move for this family business. So I'll just kind of try to give a general overview of the family and the kind of the different conflicts that happen. So the family is now three adult siblings. That is the extended family. Um, one of those siblings is Ben Hubbard. He's the easiest to say because he has no other family. He's just Ben. He's in his mid-50s. He is still single. Um, they're now there. This is a very wealthy family in the South. They used to be in trade. They own stores, which was sort of looked down upon by the Southern aristocracy. Um, but now, because of what happened post-Civil War, that, that family has risen to prominence, in fact, purchasing plantations from families that used to be the Southern aristocracy. And so now Ben is, you know, in his late middle age, fabulously wealthy, um, and a shrewd sort of negotiating, uh, clear-headed businessman. Uh, Ben's brother is Oscar. Oscar is married to Bertie. Oscar and Bertie Hubbard have a son named Leo. Oscar and Ben together run the family business, um, which has lots of different arms all throughout different agriculture and stores and all that kinds of stuff. Um, then the final sibling in the original kind of Hubbard family of this extended family is Regina. Regina is married to Horace. 
and Horace is currently in Baltimore at the start of the play because he is he's dying of uh, a, a very severe illness. He's there seeing doctors. Um, he's been there for months and months and months. Um, they're they're not sure exactly when he's coming back. In theory, he's getting treatment for something that's probably going to end his life. They know. Um, Regina, however, has stayed in Alabama to I guess keep the house. I mean, why they split up is kind of part of what you discover about the play, that their marriage was not in a strong place anyway. So her not going to Baltimore with him was as much about their marriage as it was that somebody needed to stay back and take care of the place in Alabama. Um, uh, So Regina and Horace have a daughter named Alexandra. Uh, and then the other characters are basically the indentured servants. The These are the black characters who are, uh, you know, they're in that period of American history where they were technically paid, but they were paid a pittance to basically do the same kind of field work and housework that slaves were being forced to do before the Civil War. And that is an unfortunate part of the show, too. Um, and those characters are Addie and Cal. So what happens is at the top of the play, the Hubbards, Ben, Oscar, and Regina, again, this is that trio of siblings, have invited down from Chicago a gentleman named Mr. Marshall. So this is a northern gentleman with a lot of that northern money. Um, and just as much as streetcars sort of tracks the changing south in a certain kind of way, uh, the Little Foxes also tracks the changing south in a certain kind of way. And what's happening is that there is an influx of cash from the north into the south. And that's about to sort of change Southern society forever. So this play is sort of set in the midst of that. This northern gentleman, Mr. Marshall, comes down from Chicago. He's going to provide the funds for them to build a cotton mill on their fields. This is one of Ben Hubbard's dreams for wealth, basically, is to bring the cotton mills to the field rather than having to bring the cotton up north to the cotton mills. So that's the plan, right? Mr. Marshall's down. They've had a lovely dinner. They've sold him on this idea. He's flirted with Regina the whole time, basically invited her to come back to Chicago where women will be jealous of her and men will fawn over her. Clearly, uh, he's unhappy with his wife and she is unhappy with Horace, as we learn later. So there's a promise of a potential sort of romantic, rich uh, existence in the future for Regina. Mr. Marshall goes away and we learn that this is a go-in by all three of the Hubbards. They're all going to put up a certain amount of money to meet their part of this deal in order for then Mr. Marshall to provide his part of the money so they can make this deal and everybody's going to be rich. That's the idea. I mean, there's a whole scene where they imagine all the things they're going to do with all of this money. The problem is Regina, this is a play that is set in 1900, remember, does not have any control of her family's finances. She's the woman in the relationship in the middle of this highly patriarchal society, legally patriarchal society, right? And so she has to get get Horace, her husband, to agree to this money. Horace is in Baltimore and hasn't been answering letters about this. He sends nice sort of platitude letters, but he's never been willing to talk about this business. So now the brothers, Mr. Marshall has come and gone, and Oscar and Ben say to Regina, look, it's time. You got to put up your part of the money, or we are going to go off and get the money somewhere else. We'd rather keep it in the family, but it's time. You haven't been able to prove that Horace is going to come up with the money. Regina, this is where the negotiation starts, says, well, I tell you why Horace hasn't agreed to the money. He wants a bigger share. So she negotiates with her brothers for a bigger share. Then she puts her plan into motion. She sends her daughter Alexandra to Baltimore to get Horace. He does. She doesn't tell why. She just says, we need you back here. It's an emergency, basically. Alexander, bring him home. Alexander brings him home, and Horace is now dying. I mean, no longer just sick and going to Baltimore. He is, he is nearing the end of his life, and he knows it. 
he comes back. Um, and due to some of the things that has changed about his sense of the world because of his impending death, he decides that he is not interested in going in on this business venture because the Hubbards are notoriously bad for the town. They're cruel people. They have cruel business practices. They pay the black workers in their fields a pittance and they pit them against each other to pay less. They overcharge them at the shops. They give them loans with crazy interest rates, right? And Horace says, I'm not going to be part of this anymore. I am not going to put up my side of the money. Him and Regina get in a big fight about this. Meanwhile, uh, Bertie and Oscar's son, Leo, he works at the bank with Horace, has discovered that Horace has money just sitting in his safety deposit box. So Oscar and Ben and Leo make a plan basically to steal the money, and then they'll just put it back in the box before he ever notices because, again, this business plan is going to make them all fabulously wealthy is the idea. So they go ahead with that, and they cut Regina out of the deal entirely. Remember, she had negotiated for more shares, which already put some tension in their relationship, and now the brothers, Oscar and Ben say, yeah, we're done. We got the money elsewhere. Thanks anyway. And uh, so that ends that scene. We come then to kind of the final scene of the play, which is that Horace, uh, this is sometime later, has discovered the missing money from his safety deposit box. Um, He puts a plan in motion to sort of hang it, potentially hang it over the heads of Ben and Oscar by sending his lawyer to the bank to make a big announcement, all this stuff. But then Regina comes back and it is uh, discovered, and this has all been part of it all along, that part of this deal that the Hubbard's siblings made was that Alexandra, Regina and Horace's daughter, and Leo, Oscar and Bertie's son, were sort of promised in marriage, which is not something Horace agreed on. It's part of his objection to all this as well. Horace, so Regina comes back and Horace says, hey, guess what? I'm going to just let them steal the money. I know they'll put it back, so it's basically just an interest-free loan, but you're not going to get rich over it. And when I die, I'm going to will basically everything to our daughter Alexandra and send her off so she won't stay in this crazy, cruel family. Now, that's a big problem for Regina, who's got all these dreams of what her life is going to be like. Horace, now, he's so sick, right? He's dying. He needs to take this medicine, basically, to stay alive. But as he's trying to take his medicine to stay alive, he drops it, and Regina lets him die. On stage, gasping for air, on the stairs, trying to crawl upstairs to get more medicine, he dies. And he dies before anything can really be done in his threat. The brothers come back, and basically Regina says, I win now, guys. I know you stole the money. I can prove you stole the money. Unless I get a 75% share for that money you stole and basically put me in charge of this whole business venture, I'm going to take it to the judges. The brothers realize that they lose. They go off in defeat. And uh, then there is this final exchange between Regina and Alexandra, her daughter, where Regina says, great, we win now. We're going to be rich. We're going to Chicago. And Alexandra, who's been seen the way that her father has interpreted the family, has observed the cruelty of the family towards their, basically their indentured servants, Addie and Cal, to to her father, to all these people. Alexandra says, I am not going to Chicago. I'm getting out of here. I want nothing to do with this family. And so the the play sort of ends on an Actually, a fairly nebulous note, um, but with, I think, the general understanding that uh, Regina also loses something in all this, which is her ongoing relationship with her daughter. That is the general just action-by-action plot of The Little Foxes. Yeah, there's so much crammed into this play. It is a intensely intricate plot. Lots of different things kind of weaving their way in and out of it. And all in just like 79 pages in my play script. Like this is like Shakespeare level intrigue. Yeah, <laughs> of it's, it's multiple very things. densely plotted. A lot of the, the 
sort of interviews and readings that you do about it talk about the architecture of the plot. So much is laid up and held up by elements, but you're right that it's a fairly quick read, especially as you compare it with its sort of time period comp. We've talked about this, The Streetcar Named Desire, which is a very long play. Right. <laughs> this play yep. feels like a one act by comparison. <laughs> It does. Yeah, yeah. And and yet again like so much is packed into it and so much space for characters to for us to get to know characters. Like one character who doesn't make it into the plot all that much is Birdie. Birdie has quite a few scenes in this play. Um but she's really really stuck in this family for for a variety of reasons. She is the only one of them that is from the uh, kind of South aristocracy, old South aristocracy that Oscar married into, essentially just to get her connections, though she didn't know it at the time. There's this story about how her family, of course, you know, during the Civil War period and before, they were wealthy white landowners. They were the kings and queens, the aristocracy of the South. And given what happened to the South post-Civil War, they were losing all that land. So the Hubbards, who come from this trade background, they were shop owners, looked down upon. As they become began to be more wealthy with this influx of money and new ideas into the South, they buy, they basically, Oscar marries Bertie, and this is actually in the words of the Hubbard family, to steal her from the aristocracy, this, right. this young Southern belle, beautiful ingenue. They steal her. And then by getting her, they get all this land as well. And so she's very much just a pawn in the ongoing game of this Hubbard family to become the new powerhouses, aristocracy, own everything, control everything kind of folks in the South. And you spend some time getting to know that from her perspective, that she has become aware of this. Um, One of the later scenes of the play, uh, she says that Ben wanted my family's land, so Oscar married it. Um, Which, yeah, which is just this like awareness that she has come to over these years of trying because she's she says that she fell in love with Oscar, that she loved him when they got married and that it's just slowly become clear that he never loved her back. And so there's this like this potent sadness in in Birdie character and also this like, yeah, this this uh, trappedness to her. And it's a total reversal of power, right, in the Hubbard's lifetime. And that drives a lot of their sense of who they are and what the possibilities for them are in the future. When the, the gentleman from Chicago, Mr. Marshall, is there, he describes the, they're ta- he, he describes the Hubbards as Southern aristocracy. And Ben says, we are not the aristocracy. And we're just tradespeople who've gotten wealthy, basically. You know, he's describing the class system in the South at the time. And Mr. Marshall says, oh, you are making too many distinctions. That's not how people think about it. And the line that I think is is a real indicator of the driving motivations, the line that Ben says is, no, 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 no. These distinctions have been made for us. Right. (laughs) Now that's, you know, that, that, that doesn't really hold true anymore for them. These, this family owns this town now. They are the wealthy ones. They own the plantation that they were jealous of growing up. The power dynamics have switched, but the internal sense of, uh, uh, of, 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 of discrimination, of uh, a shame, uh, of, of being the lower, the look down upon kinds of folks, that has held in them. And it is something they're continually trying to rise against now that they are the gender, now that they're the powerhouses. 
Right, and that pushes them to do all sorts of things. <laughs> um, certainly the, you know, just a shrewd business deal is what is presented at the top of it, but then pretty quickly you see everyone starting to go behind everyone else's back <laughs> and trying to uh, get something out of each other to continue kind of getting more and getting, uh, yeah, just gathering in more influence, gathering in more money. They're willing to do whatever it takes to do so, including... Um, uh, kind of uh, take away Ben. Ben is very willing to take away shares from Oscar in order to placate Regina. Regina is very willing to kind of enter, like at least outwardly, entertain the idea of marrying her daughter uh, Alexandra to her brother's son Leo. So they're first cousins. Um, and and uh, so there's there's all this and go behind horses back to do it. There's all of this like what lengths will these characters go to get what they want and we. You slowly get to see how how much they're willing to do to get what they want throughout the action of the play. And I even before they start to manipulate each other to increase their riches, to increase their power over each other, I think you get a sense that something is sort of rotten about the deal as it's described. We learn that they've pulled strings to basically uh, get they get access to sort of free use of water in order to make this deal work, right? They've kind of had leverage over the governor of the state. But then even more so, they learn that one of the things that sold Mr. Marshall and coming south for this uh, investment is that they don't have like a real working class in the sense of uh, folks that are that have a chance to use this to make a livelihood. What they have down there are indentured servants. There's no strikes. There's no workers' rights. They get paid crap. They get paid nothing. And that's part of the attraction for Mr. Marshall about making this deal there is this actual class system, right? Not the perceived class system that the Hubbards feel about the aristocracy versus the tradespeople, but the actual implemented class system of the white folks holding the black folks in indentured servitude. And that's part of what is attractive, part of what sells the deal for actually happening. And so I think we get that sense of the deal being rotten. And then it is this rotten deal is used in rotten ways to manipulate each other. Yeah, we learn that these these characters continuously do this. <laughs> I think there's a, almost a throwaway line at the end of the play where Regina has has her brothers under her foot. She's like, I've, I've got you. You're going to give me 75% or else I'm going to take it to court. And you're not going to be able to construct a jury of 12 people who don't hate you. Yeah, um, yes. So, <laughs> so it's well known that this family has, you know... Uh, taking advantage of basically everyone they've been in business with, taking advantage of the social structure. Um, the characters throughout the play kind of reflect on that. Birdie reflects on that. Um, Addie reflects on the the kind of social uh, injustice that this family conducts. Horace reflects on it at one point. Um, he has this this uh, yeah towards towards the end of his time on stage, he has this monologue about saying, "I'm not really wanting to be a part of this anymore." Um, and and so yeah, so there's this 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 potent critique of the family and what they're a part of uh, that that pushes along with the, uh, the the business deal and them trying to salvage it. Yeah, and, and just like the, the slow revelation of what kind of people these are too. I mean, I think that as you learn that there's something rotten about the deal itself, 
that you also learn there's something rotten about these people. I mean, you learn just the casual cruelty that they have over the town. I mean, even something as simple like this is a character trait of Oscar, something that he does every day. He just goes out shooting and he just shoots animals for the sport. He's not hunting them to to, to eat. And this is commented on a number of times. And not only does he go out just to shoot animals just for the sake of killing them, but he also prevents, he, he by, by virtue of the threat of violence, any of the black folks that are in indentured servitude basically for them he prevents them from actually hunting for the food that they need to sustain their life he says I'm the only one that can shoot and I'm just doing it for a good time because I like to kill things you get stories like that and you get stories like Leo and Alexandra come back from dropping Mr. Marshall off at the railroad or something and Alexandra comes back and describes how Leo just mercilessly beats the horses. I mean this is the kind of stuff that's slowly sort of layer by layer pulled back for you about this family. Yeah, Oscar and Leo proved to be one of the most obvious tells that something is something is rotten in this family. Um, right away at the top of the scene, a uh, uh, Birdie and Oscar have a uh, uh, Oscar has a very um just emotionally abusive relationship with Birdie, um, and and physically abusive in in one of the scenes even. So pretty quickly we we see. This is there's there's something really bad about Oscar. <laughs> um and Leo eventually starts to prove that too. Leo has has is is the one who kind of uh, acknowledges to Oscar that oh yeah, I broke into <laughs> to Uncle Horace's uh, safety deposit box one time and just wanted to see what he had in there. Um which is a in- a really interesting scene. There's like he mentions all the trinkets that are in there. This is mostly a side note of the point that I'm currently trying to make, but <laughs> but it's just really interesting. It one is of the things- interesting, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What, all the stuff that's in the box it's like yeah. broken pieces of violin. Right. The broken piece of the violin is such a fascinating one because we find out that that Horace played the violin before and doesn't anymore. Um, and it's just never followed up on this like broken violin. Who broke it? Why is it in there? Why did he give up on playing the violin? There's like so much in this like little mention of it. What I like about it as a little clue, I think this is probably something you'd more uncover if you were deliberately studying the script for something or producing it, is the connection then that that has to music and the way that music is held by the Hubbard family. I mean, it's like Birdie describes how she loves to play the piano, but like Oscar just doesn't like music. And that's like right, part like of doesn't understand it. Yeah, that's part <laughs> of like why she why she's unhappy in the marriage, who this Hubbard family is and learning these distinctions between the outsiders, right? Horace, who married into the family and Bertie, who married into the family versus who the Hubbards are become really important because I think it becomes the driving factor for Horace in his sort of final power grab. In truth, if if the deal about Alexandra marrying Leah weren't part of it, I don't actually know what Horace would have done about the money deal. I'm not I'm not as convinced that he comes back ready to resist with everything he's got in him. He's a very sick, tired guy. It will make a fortune. He's got these principles about how they're treating the town. But I do feel like the driving motivator for him in making this final stand before he dies is the idea that he is not going to let Alexandra marry Leo and be forced to stay in this corrupt, gross world yeah there's a lot to a lot around him being in baltimore for so long and when he comes back he has this like sense of okay i guess i have to come back um and 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 kind of finish 
finish my business down here well. But there is that blindside scene right away when he gets there. He's exhausted from the train ride. They had to stop an extra day because he couldn't he couldn't like physically take the train ride. And Addie tells him they're trying to marry Alexandra to Leo. And that seems to be the moment that galvanizes him, that kind of starts off this path, uh, gets him more energy even that day to go in and resist the Hubbards and kind of spark the eventual uh, tailspin of this family. Well, and <laughs> and and, and, and uh, Horace brings it up to Regina, right? So there, he's just arrived home. He's very sick and tired, but the family has all come in to say hello in this sort of false friendliness because they know they need his money. And Regina sends them all away. I want to talk to my husband. Blah 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 blah. And Horace says, "What the heck, Alexander is not marrying Leo. That's not happening." And Regina says, "No, no, no. I never intended. That's that's just some silly thing they've said. I've just put up with it. I agree. I have no." intention for this to ever happen but then when they start to discuss the money oscar sort of foolishly you can see regina and ben try to sort of elbow him and get him to shut up about it but he sort of says yeah i'm getting a lesser share but don't worry i'll get it all back eventually right and horace has a line where he basically says i see now i understand how all of this comes together and he realizes that his daughter's marriage is part of the business deal and not only is it is that, you know, objectionable just on face value, but it's also yeah. <laughs> that he doesn't definitely doesn't want to capture her in the middle of these people that he's been forced to live his life with. Right. That he's finally found a way, two ways out. First, kind of going away to Baltimore and having the perspective away from it, but also the knowledge that he is he, he will be dying soon and doesn't want to kind of leave behind him, uh, his daughter to kind of continue being trapped over and over again by these people and their machinations. Yeah, there, there's, a, I think, a really telling line, a really important line. It's the kind of line that I would maybe put on the poster if I were doing a production of it. It's... Um, so Horace has arrived home. They're discussing the, the deal, right? And Regina is pitching, look, I negotiated a higher share for you. I, had to, I showed these two men, Oscar and Ben, that I have a really astute business sense, that I can be a business person too. And Horace's line is, oh, you had to convince them of that? How little you people know about each other, or how little people know about each other. The idea yeah. that like, oh, you didn't, you didn't really realize that Regina can be as ruthless and selfish, and you know, self-interested in a business sense, which you know can sometimes be a good thing for business. Is she? You didn't realize she had these characteristics. You don't really know each other. Maybe people in general don't really know what we're capable of. Yeah, I think that's a really powerful theme, especially around Regina in this play. Yes. Late, late on in the play, she has she has a line that says, essentially, you know that I will not let this go. And Ben replies, I don't think any of us really know you, Regina. Um, and there's and that that theme is I think Regina's um, Regina as an unknown quantity in this family, as an unrecognized quantity in this family is a prominent theme in this play. We, we find out that their father, uh, the, the Hubbard's father, only gave his money to Ben and Oscar and cut her out of the money completely. And that's part of the reason why she's so dependent on Horace for this money is she's not actually an equal partner in this venture. Her brothers claim that they want to be able to give uh, give it to her, especially if it's, you know, help helpful in producing a third of what they have to put up for this. Um but pretty quickly, it becomes clear they're very willing to cut her out of it. So there, there's this aspect of Regina, who is a very, you know, a very savvy person. She negotiates 
a, a better uh, yeah a better deal for her and her husband. She continues in machinations throughout the play to try to bring about um, their especially her dreams of what life could be like. And yet, over and over, these characters attempt to sideline her. All all three of them actually, Horace, um, Ben, and Oscar, all attempt to sideline Regina, but she outmaneuvers them all in the end. And it, it it becomes clear at the end of the play how important what happened with their father's will is to Regina. I mean, we learn about it early in the play that she was cut out of the will, that the money only went to the men and not to her, leaving her to be economically, financially, you know, basically forced to marry someone who she didn't like. Uh, we know, we learn later on, she definitely didn't like him from the beginning of the marriage, right? But she's forced into this situation by being cut out of the will, by the patriarchy and the sexism of giving all the money to the sons. And it comes up then at the end in her sort of victory gloating dance, right? When she says, well, you know, Horace died without doing anything about it. That gives me all the power now. He didn't write the will. He says he was going to leave, which means I get all the money that I want and I know that you stole it and I can prove it. So now you work for me, all of the stuff that she manages to win in the end. And in the middle of that gloating, she says something to the effect of, yeah, dad shouldn't have cut me out of the will. This is what happens. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is, this is the, the, the full circle of that. Um, and, and, you know, uh, with without the perspective of the family is this kind this kind of awful rotten swindler group, um, you could be pretty happy <laughs> in the end that she has managed to do this. <laughs> um, but there is unfortunately this also uh, the reality that Regina is just as as culpable within the family's sort of uh, abuse of their community, abuse of the people around them, and abuse of each other. Um, that kind of makes that victory land. You you mentioned I I forget the word you used in your synopsis, but me, makes the ending feel a little ambiguous or or uh, a hollow um in, in to see to see her win at the end of the play though though there is there is certainly this like sort of victorious sense to it there's also this kind of ooh what if <laughs> are we are we sure that we like that she won yeah, well, I think by the end of the play, we're mostly just rooting for Alexandra to get out of there. Exactly. Dan Please, Alexandra, get out of in, there. In the play. And, and although it's a little, the, the final line especially is just a little ambiguous to, to quite grasp what's going on without just interpreting it in the context of a live production. It, it, it does seem like she's made her stand, right? I'm not going to go with you to Chicago. I'm not going to stay in this family. I'm getting the heck out of here. Um, so it, by the end of the play, I think that's ultimately what we're rooting for. But I think your observation that Regina is is sort of both and, right? She is both part of this family that is uh, taking advantage of their community, that is actually oppressing a group of people that is cruel and mean and spiteful. And she's also the victim of a society in which women had no power. They were forced to basically be, uh, you know, financially and desperately tied to their husbands. And we see that both in Regina and and, and the, the relationship she had with Horace although she is more the aggressor in the relationship. But then you see a, a much more, I think, empathetic version of that relationship in Bertie and Oscar. And she is trapped in her marriage to Oscar. Yeah, yeah. Bertie um, certainly kind of offers this, 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 uh, you know, someone who is less able to kind of stand toe to toe with Oscar and Ben um, and, and has this sort of... Uh, 
yeah, real grief around the life that she is living. She also, I, I don't know that she necessarily gets off completely scot-free in this, this play either in terms of critique. She has a lot of kind of nostalgic longing for the way the life used to be for her. Um, yeah, especially she, she's got a line that can makes you groan a little. I'm not sure exactly how it would have been heard in, in 1939, but it, nowadays she says something like they're talking about their slaves and, you know, we treated ours well or something like that. Yeah. Like, Ooh, there's, so you've got, there's, you got this yeah. going on too. There's a number of scenes like that where she kind of brings up her father and would it be nice to bring back the plantation to the way it used to be. Her main dream is to try to restart the house that, that she grew up in and try to bring it back to the way she, that she used used to experience life. And so there is this kind of like uh, sim- similar sense of like, boy, it's clear that Bertie is like living through really intense oppression at the hands of this patriarchal system. And yet uh, also this kind of, oh, there's still something, uh, the core of this is still, the core of the nostalgia even is still this slightly rotted, not slightly, this this rotted out um, part of the culture that she is trying to hearken back to. Well, let's talk about the title a little bit because ostensibly the title doesn't have much to do with the plot of the play in the sense that there, there's not foxes in the play. The title is not, there's no foxes mentioned by the characters in the play. They're not describing little foxes that they own or <laughs> the, the, the characters in dialogue don't make the metaphoric connection to the title. But the, the title is given to us in, typically you put it on the quote page of the script. I would imagine most productions try to do some sort of dramaturgical connection for the audience to understand the title because there's a lot there. It's a reference to a verse from the Song of Solomon, take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines for our vines have tender grapes. That's one of the older translations clearly you can hear. And there's a lot there's a lot that's been made of that verse in connection with this play. And you read 10 analyses of the play and you'll have you know, six or seven different interpretations of that quote and how it applies. One of the more common interpretations is that the tender grapes from the verse is a description of all of the money that is was being brought into the South by the North post-Civil War, and that these people, these this Hubbard family, are an example of folks who end up spoiling that tender grape, right? They're the little foxes, and what they do spoils that money who that could have flooded into the communities, provided a lot of advantage to these newly freed slaves to start lives to these towns that were desperately poor to rebuild. But instead, wealthy people just sucked it all up. I mean, boy, does this place seem relevant in some ways or not? They they sucked it up for themselves and disadvantaged their communities. That's one of the more common interpretations. Yeah. And that that sort of... um that sort of basis for that that or interpretation for that quote is kind of backed up by Ben late in the play who kind of finally acknowledges that he's he's lost to Regina and that he and Regina are much more alike than he and Oscar are and he says um uh, towards the end of that, he says, uh, the century's turning, the world is open, open for people like you and me, ready for us, waiting for us. After all, this is just the beginning. There are hundreds of Hubbards sitting in rooms like this throughout the country. All their names aren't Hubbard, but they are all Hubbards and they will win. 
they will own this country someday. We'll get along. And so there is that critique of like, this is this is the pattern that this uh, critique of the way the pattern went, that all of these kind of wealthy mercantile families got a lot of the money and then kept it. Um, and, and, and what continue. they're willing to do to keep it. Right. I mean, yeah. How long, ben and oh, yeah. Oscar are very directly responsible for disadvantaging the community, for keeping the black folks in basically indentured servitude, paying them nothing, charging them high interest to the stores, ruining their community. I'm, Regina, although she's connected to the family, she doesn't have a lot of power in those exchanges, so she's not quite as responsible for that. But Lillian Hellman gives her a moment where she says, what would you do for the money and the wealth, the privilege to travel, for people to fawn over your clothing, to be seen as wonderfully chic in all of these northern cities? What would you do for that power, Regina? And we see what she does. She kills her husband. Yeah, yeah. Yep, that's 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 that she she yeah she I was gonna try to qualify that and see like no well way, she watches man. him die but no she kills him <laughs> she uh-huh. kills him <laughs> yep uh, another possible interpretation of that quote I, I I like that 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 one seems like the right one to me the one we've already talked about another way uh, to interpret it is is wandering around the 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 kids in this play and Alexandra in this play um, especially Alexandra we we maybe see that like maybe Leo's life could have turned out differently if he had different parents but by the time we meet leo leo is a little far gone um alexandra he's like an example of what could happen right i mean oscar is such a cruel dark-hearted twisted individual and you see what he did to his son by virtue of being that he turned his son into the same thing Mm -hmm. yeah but alexandra is the one that we kind of gets gets you know final final scene of the play um we we stay she's in many of the scenes follows through most of the plot and we she doesn't like she she yeah she she has a hard time exacting her will on the plot though she is constantly involved in the plot and we kind of see um how 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 these characters are affecting her and the possibility of her able to get out and eventually her ability to claim that for herself to say even in the midst of just an awfully tragic moment of like having her father die seconds before she is able to say to her mother I'm not on board with you and I'm going away um, and you can't you can't stop me. Right. So um, in, in this case, the metaphor would be and it's a common metaphor, right, that like fruit is a metaphor for offspring for the next generation. And these little foxes spoil the vines of the generations after generations, spoiling the next generation, the fruit, the offspring, these tender grapes that could be the next generation who could make things better. These kids who could live a better life and they're, they're, they're being spoiled. Not spoiled rich, but like actually made dark and and hard-hearted and greedy. Right, right. And that kind of gives us a little bit of of a center in this play to kind of guide us through the whole action of the play. Because there are there are, this play is full of strong characters, yeah. all enacting their will against each other. And it and it's wild to kind of ride with them. Like like we see Regina in the first scene, but she doesn't have the weight that she does by the end of the play. Uh, Birdie has a lot of weight in the start of the play. Um, we we see we spend a lot of time with her. Um, but by the end of the play, she's she's kind of faded into the background a little bit. She's not even in the last scene. Um, so you you have uh, but but then you have these kids in the play too who float through every scene of the play and get ping or pinballed off of these greater forces of, of especially the Hubbards around them. Um, and, and you kind of stay with them all the way to the end, especially with Alexandra. So that kind of gives me a, a lens or a perspective from which to be watching this play um, to, to kind of be evaluating these people on the basis of how they affect their children. 
Yeah, I I totally agree. And the question of what is going to happen between the kids, as we've described, bears so much, not only on how we end up interpreting the play, what characters are rooting for at the end, but on the decisions made by the characters as they go along. I mean, from the beginning of the play, one thing that the characters are all in agreement on is that they want this to stay in the family. The family is prioritized. And Horace later on sort of reinterprets that and says, look, this part of my family is is black and evil, right? I mean, is is a dark, terrible place. We are not, we are going to stay away from that part of this Hubbard part of the family. But my daughter and I, we are going to be prioritized because there's a chance for us to be better. Um, but I think in agreement across the whole play is this sense of, family and the generations to come being prioritized. We're going to be a rich family in this area forever is the idea, right? We're going to be the new aristocracy. And, you know, that's not a, a wonderfully laudable uh, place to be, right? I don't, right. don't root for them, I don't think. But that is the logic. Yeah. Yeah. So you kind of see how that works out for them. <laughs> and it works out in a broken family. Like they've kept it in the family by the end of the play. It worked. Um, but a, a person's dead and, and the, uh, the relationship with the children is, is very strange. The brothers are probably very mad at each other. Um, so there's, 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 uh, as, as a result of that commitment to, uh, you know, keeping it in the family, um, they, they were willing to do too much to keep the family together. One of the things that I think is really interesting about this play is how wonderfully Lillian Hellman has crafted offstage moments. I mean, there's several really significant things that happen offstage and the news, the description, the impact is brought into Regina and Alexander's home. I'm not sure I ever said that. That The play takes place in their home, although it really could take place in any of the homes, but it sure. takes place in their home. And so all this stuff that happens outside is brought in. For example, um, Alexander going to Baltimore is a whole major event and the description of what happened and the interpretation between the characters it, it all happens off stage and they bring it in to the fight that they're going to have on stage about it uh, Regina and Horace their big argumentative yelling fight about the whether or not they're going to sign this business deal that happens upstairs off stage and we just sort of hear the echoes of it what happens with Leo at the bank both stealing the safety deposit box opening it for the first time getting scared by the lawyer all of that stuff happens off stage. And I, I think part of what is so interesting about it for the characters is like um, all we get to see is how the characters interpret those events for each other. We never get to see the true facts of what happened in all these offstage moments. We just get to see how they describe it to each other. One great example of that is we've heard offstage this echoing, yelling fight between Regina and Horace. And then she comes on and Ben says, that doesn't look like it's going to happen. And she says, I'll convince him. Don't worry. I'll find a way to convince him. And it's like everybody in the audience is like, it doesn't sound like it. (laughs) But what does she say about that fight? I'm going to find a way to convince him. That's how she interprets the event to her family. And that, I think, for this sort of family character-motivated kind of drama, this dialogic confrontation kind of drama, is a really interesting way to handle all the stuff that has to happen outside of the actual combat between the family in order to motivate what happens between them. Yeah, there's a, there's a, ro- a robust set of events that happen outside of the bounds of the home. Um, and to bring them in in that way uh, through the subjective uh, accounts of these characters is a really fascinating way to do it. There's also uh, 
scenes that happen simultaneously or in in rooms aside that also kind of provide a a halfway beat of that where we see scenes um where like Horace learns that Alexandra is 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 uh, going to be married off to Leo um and we 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 get welcomed into those scenes and can kind of view it um without the subjective view of the characters so it's it's a it's a really nice blend of those two outside of the main action strategies one is kind of completely governed by subjective uh interpretations from the characters uh, there's there's the and then there's the kind of halfway point of either the yelling that we hear off stage and can make our own judgments or the characters themselves uh kind of playing out a scene that the rest of the family doesn't see and has have which has big implications on the following action and we're and we're set up to experience the play this way from the first scene right because the first scene is birdie coming on and said oh mr marshall the guy from chicago he wanted me to share this special music thing that i had had signed by somebody he asked me to bring it and show it to him he was so excited about it and her cruel husband oscar comes on and says he doesn't want that you're annoying him he was just like agreeing with you because you were blabbering on right and we don't know we weren't there now we learn later on that birdie was more right than oscar because mr marshall actually comes on stage and then offers at least his subjective view of what happened but from right. the very beginning of the play we get the sense that we're going to watch these characters interpret offstage action for their own benefit in context of the battles that they're in with each other yeah which is just a fascinating uh element to be like kind of uh it's it's not quite watching lies from people, um, but it's it's close to that. It's more like watching just completely different interpretations of 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 the world around each other. Sometimes it's lies, like in the instance of Horace uh, coming up and and telling Ben, uh, trying to get Leo to tell Ben in an oblique way that they have the money, but Leo just doesn't pick up on it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, and he's like, "Oh no, I'm gonna go steal from Uncle Horace." Mm-hmm. Um, so so <laughs> so yeah, it's just a fascinating way to play with truth um uh and and the subjective version of truth well i think we're about out of time there for the little foxes one of those great great pieces of american drama you know whether it'll continue to get production after production i don't i don't know there's a lot of spectacular contemporary drama and there's a you know there's a place in history for these really historical pieces uh but the ability to come back to it as a reader and experience the story at least in as much as that way uh reminds you why some of that drama from the middle 20th century was so important impactful has stuck around for so long yeah and continues to present themes that are that are interesting to grapple with and to have conversation about especially with historical context now and kind of evaluative of historical stances so so yeah there's plenty of more to talk about in this play we'd love to keep talking about it with all of you out there in podcast land um a great way to do that is to find us on social media you can find us on facebook instagram or twitter at the username at no script podcast we also have a gmail no script podcast at gmail.com if you are looking for someone to talk about the little foxes with that's a great way to do it find us on any of those sites we'd love to keep talking about it with you absolutely if you like this episode or any of our other episodes please consider recommending no script the podcast to your family and friends they can find us on facebook insta uh, jackson already said the social media channels they can find us on podbean apple podcast google play (laughs) or uh spotify and if you like us on facebook there's a link to the new episode that appears every monday when the episodes come out for the less technologically savvy folks that don't want to connect on a specific podcast channel you can just find us on the facebook page click it and the website will pop up for you to play it right from there 
So until next week when we are talking about another play, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script, the podcast.